Hey there, welcome to the Collide Podcast. This is Willow Weston, and I am the founder and director of Collide. And if you want to know more about our ministry, go to wecollide.net and check it out. We have so much more for you than this podcast. We have blog posts and Bible study books and devotions and a counseling program and so, so much more. So check, check, check it out. But today I'm so glad you hopped on with me. You're about to hear an interview that I just did with Kevin Sweeney, and it is going to give you a lot to think about. My brain is thinking, thinking, thinking still. I made a lot of notes. I have a lot of questions. There was a lot of challenging thoughts and a lot for me to just really chew on that I'm excited to hand over to you. Kevin was the co-founder and lead pastor of Imagine Church in Honolulu and recently just closed that down and has transitioned into full-time author and podcast host. He hosts the podcast called The Church Needs Therapy and wrote two books, including his latest, The Joy of Letting Go. And we had this great conversation around the beauty on the other side of letting go. So check it out. So, Kevin, there's so many things I want to ask you about. You are the host of a podcast called The Church Needs Therapy. You've written a book called The Joy of Letting Go. But before we get to those exciting things, you were co-founder and lead pastor of Imagine Church in urban Honolulu for, Mm -hmm. it sounds like, a decade, and you've recently transitioned out of that. That's a huge, Mm -hmm. a huge move. What has led you to make such a big change? Yeah. First of all, you know, this like being the second book and doing interviews and getting to meet a lot of great people. I don't take for granted people welcoming me on their show. Hmm. You know, I really, I really, it means something to me. And I think in light of the larger transitional season in my life, it's like each one of these moments is not just a good step for the book, but it's actually feels like another step for this next unknown chapter of my life, you know, these kinds of conversations. So one, thank you for whatever energy you, Kim, you know, I'm emailing back and forth. I always thank the people doing that because it means a lot to make it work. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. both of you. And yeah, my wife and I started a church called Imagine Church in almost right now, like summer of 2013. So about 10 years ago. And we started in our living room and there was a new neighborhood, Kaka'aka, where we are right now. It's like the unofficial arts district. And my thought back then is these new neighborhoods need new pastoral imaginations in order to follow Jesus into the future. And imagine for people who, any like theology nerds who listen in, like for Walter Brueggemann and one of the greatest Old Testament theologians who I love, has some of the most profound writing on imagination I've ever read that really shapes me profoundly in everything I do. And his general thing is like the prophets were people who imagined alternative futures beyond the empire and in doing so invited new possibilities in the present. Or called people into accountability in the present, whatever what was re- required. So imagine was that imaginative step of what does it look like to follow Jesus into the future right where we are. And, you know, I had a great experience. I loved the church that we built. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard. Pastoring is a very challenging thing. There's a lot of wounds you get along the way. Leading is hard. There's this unique, invisible burden you carry. It's pastoring. I tell people pastoring is 
like a convergence of parts of all of the hardest things most people unconsciously avoid their entire lives. <laughs> Constantly being vulnerable and putting yourself out there, wondering if anyone's going to come. Um, holding space of uncertainty in relationships, which which usually draws out the worst default patterns of our ego for survival when we don't know where we stand with people, a constant cycle of loss in and out. Like it's all, I, I could go on and on about complex emotional fields in relationships and family-like systems, just like family systems we grow up in. So it's a maddening, insane thing. And it, don't get me wrong, there's loss, heartbreak along the way, but at the same time, I love the church we built. And I also tell people you can lead and pastor without ever burning out. I never burnt out in 10 years. I never overworked myself to the point where I got sick. You know, I was engaged, but also I gave myself the permission to be a human and to enjoy where I live and understand I can care for people without taking full responsibility for their lives. I think we can do that, you know, in our lives. And I am I'm proud of that journey. And what it came down to was when COVID hit, I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but everything changed. <laughs> and no well, way. What's, no in way. What's, what's interesting right now is it was three years ago right now. And that journey of leading through COVID was very hard, digital, adapting constantly. And then you're having this post-murder of George Floyd uprising. You're leading people through what for some people feels like a new social awakening, what for other people is actually not anything new, but a part of a trajectory of the United States of America as a whole. And there's complexity and there's feelings around it that are hard. And it's like the transitioning out of the Trump era. There was a lot happening mm -hmm. the past three years. And in the fall of 2021, after not meeting consistently in person for 18 months, my wife and I thought we have, there's one more, we're going to reopen and there's one more chapter ahead for us. That's what we thought, you know, two to three year rebuilding chapter and about four to six weeks into that process of reopening, I started to realize this is the last chapter, but it's not a rebuilding one. I could just feel it. I could see it. I knew it. And thankfully my wife and I did not carry the unnecessary obligatory burden of feeling like imagine has to exist forever in order for it to be valuable. That just isn't how we operated. We're like, if this was a beautiful community for about a decade for people, transformation, baptism, inclusion, connection, et cetera, then that's a good thing. And we can, and my mind started shifting of like, this is a moment of restoration to like, oh, imagine's moving into hospice care. Because I think about communities as living beings and organisms. And so I thought, oh, if you transition something into the imagination and the thought of hospice care, you're, the way you relate to this living thing completely transforms. It's no longer preserving longevity. It's quality and depth as we have this time together right now. And we announced to the church, hey, this is where we're at. We're going to do one last six-month journey back at our place eat, drinking, no more sermons. I had no more energy for that at that point. I'm like, we're just going to be together the same way we started. And then we're all going to move on. And that's what we did. And our last Sunday was May 29th. So 10 months ago, nine months ago, maybe. So I'm not even a year out from that moment. Wow. So you moved yeah. from hospice care to actually having a funeral. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, no, that's... Definitely. And we, and we had, you know, hospice care, the six-month journey, just saying, hey, 
no one has to come on this, but we're making room for people because there's are there are questions that arise for people. Why is this happening? There are feelings of hurt or confusion. But I do know, and I, I said this in like the acknowledgments to the book, like to imagine for allowing us to let go into grace. Because when my wife announced, when my wife and I announced this at church, the first response was from people was they stood up and gave us a standing ovation hmm. just for the journey. Hmm. You know, we, we, we weren't like, let's strategically unroll this in, in steps so they're not mad at us. And it's seen, no, just this is where we're at. This is what's really happening. And it yeah. was, it was a, Obviously, there's emotions there, but it could not have ended in a more real, how do you honor something as it's dying kind of a way and trust. Um, I don't know. I, I tend to believe we live in a world where death and resurrection is not just something we believe happened back then, but constantly happens around us. And you have to take risks and you have to stay in the death and hold that space long enough to allow resurrection to emerge in its own time you know, as you cooperate with it. So I'm still in the middle of that right now, to right. be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's really brave to, to let something die that you've, mm-hmm. you've worked so hard to infuse life into. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a brave move for sure. Mm-hmm. I love when you talked about imagining new possibilities. So I'm guessing that God had not only led you to close up shop, if you will, of, of, imagine church, but he also began to help you imagine other possibilities for your life. So what are, are those things that you're leaning into now, now that you're 10, 11 months down Mm. the road from, from the funeral? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. You know, even prior to the imagining, that was a key thing for the way my wife and I led imagine our church was I never felt so over-identified with my role as pastor that I couldn't imagine a life not doing that. Mm-hmm. I was like, this pastoring, this role at Imagine Church is the primary vehicle through which the life of God is unfolding through and expressing itself as spirit for the sake of the world. That's great. This is a great vehicle. I love the church, but it's not going to be like this forever. And when that ends, we think like, We think when the moment or the shape of something ends, like the miracle and the substance goes with it. No, the miracle and the substance of life and God just reemerges in a new form. If you allow it to, Mm -hmm. if you can, that's the book. If you can let go of the way things were, if you can die to the form that was after the grief, all of this space imagines, all this space emerges to imagine new things. And for me ending, you know, now it's looking to the future of, man, our church was so filled with creatives and artists and freelancers just in the neighborhood we were in. And I worked closely with them just as friends and we would work on projects. And my natural pastoral relationship with them is, oh, a lot of solidarity for people who are on the creative entrepreneurial journey because it's hard. A lot of helping them gain clarity on where they are, what they're feeling, how to move forward, how to keep going. You know, when it's hard to keep going, it's hard to keep caring. And I'm like, oh, I think I can actually organize those organic spaces into a way for me to work with small businesses and entrepreneurs and freelancers out here where it's like, I'm like like a therapist for creatives and entrepreneurs, you know, and help be a part of their journey. Oh, that's something I could do. And I think Mm -hmm. the possibility of spiritual direction is something I love. You know, there's a lot of high capacity, more administratively oriented people that like one-on-one counseling or being with people, 
they don't like it, you know, and I, we're all different. But for me, I really love talking to people. Hmm. I love hearing the intricacies of a person's story and helping them gain clarity on the subtleties of their own spirit as it's growing and being like, oh, it's, you thought it was that, but actually you need to forgive someone over here. Oh, you thought you need to try harder. You actually need to let yourself be loved better. Like those types of moments. And I'm like, oh, spiritual direction. That's something I still would really love to do because that's what I enjoy. And that's something I, so I have those. I'm in the middle. I'm on my, I'm writing the next book right now. So it's, but it's still, there's still about um, three months out from starting to un- roll out some of these things. And to be honest, right when Imagine, when we announced Imagine was ending in January, I intuitively and almost instantaneously just thought, I need 18 months. I need 18 months. And I was still like, I came out with two books during that time and I'm writing now. So I was still doing stuff, but I'm like, I need 18 months to not be in heavily people-oriented environments where I have a role to organize, lead, or manage. I'm not there. There's a Mm -hmm. fragility I can feel after the past decade. There's a... I, I, the things that were normal before would feel overwhelming to me. I had, there's a lot of space I need to rest before I can do that. So I, I'm still, I'm like emerging out of that, but still in it right now, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think so many people are in that place and yet mm. they can't step out of the role that they're in right now. It's super cool that you're able to, but some people are literally like, I feel that fragility, but I have to keep going and doing what I'm doing, which is mm. hard. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I one thing I one of the things I say in my first book is like the mystic knows how to take life seriously and yet not seriously at all. At the same time, that's a paradox. Like you hear me in one moment, I'm talking about justice. I'm talking about evolution of consciousness. They're like, damn, this dude's like, oh, like he's too serious. Then, then you meet me in another environment. They're like, he's a pastor. This dude doesn't take anything seriously. I'm like, no, it's both. <laughs> because that's a part of like, not the belief system you have and hold, but the trust you have from knowing that you are being held by God for me takes the weight off and allows all this to feel much lighter. This can end. Something else will happen. I have two kids. My wife and I have two little kids. The risks we're taking right now for me to end is very real. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's economic implications for my children's future and present. Mm-hmm. And yet, to me, there's a playfulness that comes from really, really doing the Jesus journey and trusting death and resurrection in your own life. You're like, we can let that die because this story says there is resurrection. I've trusted it before. Let's trust it again, even though I'm approaching 40, even though the risks get heavier as you get older. No, this is still the story. And to keep growing, we have to keep entering into these in-between liminal spaces that are scary because this is where the new life is born every single time. Mm, I love the idea of trusting the death and resurrection in our own lives. It's so good. You just recently came out with this book, The Joy of Letting Go. I want to talk about that for a second because you say about letting go that it's not one thing we do, but that which maintains the flow of everything we do. Can you tell us more about what you mean by that? Mm, Yeah, I appreciate that. Each chapter in the book is about a different thing. So there's a chapter on compassion, a chapter on working for justice, a chapter on growing and evolving, a chapter on being present. And that quote's important because what I'm saying is in order to do every single one of these things well, you have to be able to let go. 
Like letting go is not one thing we do outside of these things. Disconnected letting go is that which is within all of these things and everything we do that allows the flow to continue. So like in a chapter on being present, I might talk to somebody and they'll think, what does being present have to do with letting go? You know, you you wouldn't really think those things are connected immediately. But, you know, in that, I'll say something simple, like if you don't practice letting go, you will be too attached to the specific way you think the moment's supposed to be. So you can't like, when you, when you need to fix something, you cannot be present. If you're trying to change someone, you cannot be present. When you try and control the moment, you cannot be present. See, if your mind cannot accept any specific part of the moment, you cannot be present to the wholeness, to the beauty and the miracle of the moment. So what do I have to do in order to be present? I have to let go of the way I thought this moment was supposed to go. Because if I'm attached to the way I thought it was supposed to go, I can't let it be what it is because I'm frustrated, angry. I'm forcing and coercing people to cram them into my idealized way. Oh, in order to be present, what's really required is not me forcing reality into this small box I had of what it was supposed to be. It's letting go of the box I thought it was supposed to be and letting it be exactly what it is. And guess what? Now we're back towards each other. I'm back with the person who's in front of me. I'm back with my kids or whatever I'm doing. So letting go is required for being present, you know, compassion, suffering with somebody. What is required to be compassionate? You have to let go of your need to avoid pain. If you have an unconscious need to avoid pain and you can't sit in the presence of a person who's hurting because it requires you to feel some of your own hurt and those are uncomfortable emotions you just don't deal with, that's why we that's why we want to fix people. That's why we want to logically explain to people why they shouldn't be hurting because it's really hard to just bear witness to pain and suffer with people. What do I have to do to be a person of compassion? I have to let go of my need to avoid pain. I have to let go of my need to explain everything logically in order for me to be present. So over the years, that's where the book came from. I would just be in so many conversations with people about so many things. And I'm like, you're telling me it's 53 different things, but I can see to the center of this. And usually when we feel stuck, there's something really hard you have to accept and something really painful you have to let go of. And it's hard to say that because it's, it's the grief work is real. But when you do it, all of a sudden there's this whole space for new life. So sometimes we think it's about trying harder. I'm like, it's actually about letting go within all of these things, subtle thousand times every week, little ones, big ones, releasing from this, detaching from that. They offended me. I can accept that and let go of that. They said this, I can, oh, that was my expectation. That's why I'm mad. I can let go of that. And letting go just maintains the flow of our whole life all the time without us even realizing it. Hmm. That's so interesting. When I think about people listening, what, you know, they might not think, oh, I have a letting go issue. Mm. (laughs) I need to work on letting go. You gave such specific examples that were so, Mm. so good. But I'm curious, like, what are some indicators in our life that we might not be so great at letting go? Mm. Frustration is always a symptom of non-acceptance. If I'm frustrated with the way this job turned, the way this entrepreneurial endeavor turned out, I'm frustrated. Like as a pastor, for example, 
very easy to be frustrated as a pastor. Very easy. Because you're dealing with people and they're not growing the way you, you think they're supposed to grow. Who said that, by the way? You know, that's one of the things that saved me along the way is like, I can let people be exactly where they are. And to me, that's the humbling thing about being a guide and being a pastor is you're like, I'm willing to go with you as far as you allow me. So, so the depth of our relationship is on your terms, not mine. That's already hard, divesting yourselves of power and control. Hey, some people wake up and grow. Some people do the same thing again and again and again. And either way, I don't lose sleep at night because I'm not you and you're you. I'm me. I'm a guide. I'm not, I'm not responsible for you in that way. So two years into church planning, you could easily be like, I thought we were supposed to be here at this point, have this many levels of leadership. I went to this conference and they said, excellence looks like this. And I thought we were supposed to be here. No, but, but you're not. So am I going to get frustrated and work overwork myself to convince myself I'm doing enough based on those previously established expectations? Or do I say, oh, but this is where we are. And if I can let go of how I thought this was supposed to go, I can let it be what it is. Now that I'm here, I can creatively work with it and grow instead of feeling like I'm not doing enough, putting it on other people and making them work harder, somehow putting blame out there. Oh, I can let go of my expectations and let it be what it is. That's true for marriages, partners, relationships. So often we're you're frustrated with where a person is. You have to die to the way you think this person's supposed to be and let them emerge as the beautiful, mysterious, imperfect person they are and let yourself do the same for them. That's all letting go of things along the way. And this is, I sit down, I would joke about, think about this in my mind in our old apartment. Kids are down. I finally sit down on the couch. I'm exhausted. I'm going to have a glass of wine and who knows what stupid thing I'm going to watch on my computer. And like, there's one more thing I didn't do. My wife's like, hey, babe, you know, can you do this? Because you, you forgot to do it or something. My initial default response is frustration in that moment because I'm tired. <laughs> Young kids make you tired. <laughs> and yeah, you. I can get frustrated. And what is frustration? It's non-acceptance. It's, it's like a form of anger and non-acceptance in a subtle way. But if I can let go of this was my moment to finally relax, if I can let go of that little need I had, do this one thing for a minute and a half. Now I can return to it. But if I don't, now I'm just pissed, frustrated. Maybe I say something passive aggressive to my wife. Maybe she's taken it back. Now we're, no, there's just a little letting go that was required of mine. A little hard thing to accept. Now we're back and we're all good. So to me, letting go, the invitation to let go is almost everywhere all the time on these subtle ways. Your mental, spiritual, and emotional health is worth time, energy, and investment. As women, we can sometimes struggle to find the space and time necessary to focus on rejuvenating our minds and our spirits. But the truth is, our health is worth it. The Collide Counseling Bundle is an online course featuring 12 videos of mental health professionals giving their best advice, journals, resources, and so much more to help walk you through the topics that are most relevant to your life, anxiety, broken relationships, body image, and more. We are so thrilled to be making the resources for a sustainable healing journey available for the same investment as what one therapy session typically costs, $99. It's time to invest in your healing and wholeness. Learn more at wecollide.net slash counseling bundle.
I thought you were going to respond to her by telling her to let it go. I like your angle, but <laughs> you actually got up and helped her out. All husbands everywhere need to listen to this podcast. No, well, that, that's, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm sort of curious because the invitation you're laying out feels really, it feels really beautiful. And it sounds, it sounds beautiful. It sounds <laughs> like to trust God in death and resurrection, to let go, to lean more into acceptance of where people are at rather than where we expect them to be. Like I'm all in. I'm curious though, you make it look so easy. So is there an epiphany you had in life? Is there like an experience or, or someone or something that shaped you in such a way where letting go has become so doable for you? Mm, mm, That's a great, that's a, that is a great, great question because it gets at what the, the crux of why it's so hard because it is, um, in the intro to my first book, The Making of a Mystic, I say the peace the mystic has in public comes from the tears they've shed in private. Because of what I'm talking about. Radical forms of, of acceptance most people may never understand. Real forms of letting go of things you never thought you'd be, you'd be required to let go of. Expectations on the world, expectations on work, expectations on reality itself of what it is. Because... All these are particular examples, but when you zoom out, what we real on a universal level, if you really want to expedite this process and get a head start and make it easier, on a larger universal level, what we're really doing is forgiving reality itself for being flawed. It's really hard. That's why even Jesus's story about, you know, you uh, how many times do I forgive? Seven oh seven times seventy seven, and I'll say that's a radical teaching if Jesus tells people tells us to forgive people every time that already itself is, is problematic for us, you know? Mm-hmm. And I say, I think it's actually deeper and more radical than that. I think more than Jesus saying, forgive every individual or circumstance each time it goes wrong. No, you actually need to step back and forgive reality itself for being what it is. It's imperfect flaw. doesn't go the way you want. Doesn't always work out is really painful. There's a lot of hard things. So a lot of times our individual wrestling is actually a wrestling with the non-acceptance of the way the world is as a whole. That's like a zooming in from the particular to the universal quickly. But I, my first book, The Making of a Mystic, the subtitle is My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax. And I went to Catholic school, first, second, third grade, left, went to public school, which for me, going to public school, LA Unified School District, kids fighting all the time. I was like, this is salvation for me because that's what I wanted. (laughs) Like when I went to public school and kids are cussing and fighting, I'm like, this is where I belong. So thank you, God. I don't even know if you're there, but this is it for me. But, you know, I left that experience and stopped going to mass at a young age. And my parents didn't force it on me with what I call a pleasant indifference. Didn't really think about it. I wasn't mad at God. I wasn't mad at the church. I had no ideological war with the Pope and the ex-cathedral. How dare you? This is no way, you know? And I also didn't have any affinity for it. It was just like non-existent for me. I had some profound experiences with mushrooms as a teenager that started to transform my life. And then when I was 18 years old, on mushrooms, I had a spontaneous awakening moment with with God that would change my life forever. 
You know, it was the warmth of a mother, the strength and affirmation of a father, the the safety of feeling at home, direct love towards me, was direct experience of the divine, which defines the lives of the mystics. The reason why I say all that is from the very beginning of my faith, my faith was not a system I believed in. It was a transformational experience. It was it was an actual being loved. Like for the mystic to know God, is, it's not about knowing God, it's about being known by God. It's not about loving God, it's being loved by God. The foundation of my faith was I am loved so well, I feel like I will be okay no matter what. Hey, this job doesn't work out. Worst case scenario in my early 30s, imagine doesn't work out. We have no money. We got to move home. My parents would take us in for a while to get us back on our feet. Like your ego will be humiliated, but I'm like, that's not actually who I am foundationally anyways, because this larger sense of self and God, that doesn't actually mean anything. I can begin again. So letting go is trusting that you will be carried through the death every time. Because letting go feels like death, because letting go is death. It's a letting go of something and dying to something are the same. It's just different ways of saying it. So, letting go of the expectations I had on how relationships are supposed to work as a pastor, you know, when you love somebody really well and they end up crushing you or hurting you, betraying you, which happens. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe a part of me unconsciously thought if you love people really well that they're going to stick around. Oh, that's. That's not how this works. Wow. Can I, can I accept that we live in a reality where I can open my heart and give myself fully to people and they still might leave? That feels like I can't accept that because I think I will disintegrate. I don't know what we think, but our ego relates to those things as death. And the funny thing is they are. There's just more life on the other side. But we think we won't make it through if we accept that or let go of that. And every time we do, not only are we okay, but we're actually more us than we were on the previous side because we have let go of some of the boundaries on our sense of self that were never meant to be there in the first place and we're getting in the way the whole time. So letting go isn't just about moving forward. It's about becoming more and more of who you actually are because the layers of you that aren't you, that you think are you, are getting shed along the way every time you do it. It all And, and it all sounds poetic and beautiful as we're on the We Collide podcast and we talk about it and we laugh and it's great, but every letting go is an embodied experience. It is a mind, heart, and body have to be aligned. And when you do it, you will feel it. Your body might be flushed with anxiety. You might have your heart might be beating fast. Your face might get warm, depending on how grief and anxiety register in your body. Holding that space and staying still, not avoiding, distracting, running from it taking it into you and feeling it all the way through when you're letting go of it in the end you're like i'm still here and i'm actually more alive than ever and to me i just trust that mm -hmm. there's a lot of organizational stuff i'm not good at like i'll joke around i'm like six years into pastoring i'll google before a meeting that i'm supposed to lead what do i do in a meeting because <laughs> i'm an idiot you know but <laughs> the interior life because that's where my life with god began that stuff just makes a lot of sense to me and I trust it, you know? And the better you get at letting go, man, growth, forgiveness, moving beyond bitterness and resentment, it, it speeds up quite a bit when you get when you get used to this stuff. Because this is, we wish we could just, 
you know, rage against the machine harder. We wish we could just show up to an event and sing louder. We wish it was all these other things that we can do out of our own strength when oftentimes the deeper invitation is acceptance and letting go. But the more we trust that, everything opens up in a new way. I love that you say there's more life on the other side. I feel like that's a mantra that I could say to myself over and over again when I'm feeling mm. like God's inviting me to let go of something, whether it's an expectation, a mindset, an unforgiveness, a mm. um, place I find my identity, whatever it is, like to remind myself there's more life on the other side of this. Mm. That's such mm. a good that's such a good word. I yeah, want to I want to go back only because I think there's going to be people tripped up by this. And so I think <laughs> I have to go back. Um, yes. Because if I don't go back, then I think people are confused. And so we're going to go back to the mushroom story. Oh, and how did I know we were going back there? How did oh, I know that? <laughs> you'd ask all the time. But I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the story was, but it sounds like in your place that you were at, God showed up in the midst of this in a way where you experienced something supernatural while experimenting with mushrooms. But mm. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Tell sure. tell us what you mean by that. Because there's going to be some people listening like, is he telling us to do mushrooms to experience God? Yes. Like, what, what yes. are you getting at when you share that story? Yes, I will say as my disclaimer, I... Do not prescribe people psilocybin, which is the hallucinogenic property within mushrooms. I, I never have. And I, it's not a, this is not a prescriptive story. It's descriptive of me laugh. My, I got, one of the things I love my own story, because I think my life's funny because I live, I've lived so many different lives. It feels like, you know, like playing basketball as a kid, I grew up involved in hip hop and involved in music. And then the, like, it's, it's, it's funny to me. And so the mushroom <laughs> stuff is just me owning the fullness of our story, which by the way, we all have to do. You have to own every moment and conversation and mistake and hurt that we've caused and hurt that's been done in order to integrate and become the kind of people who are as free and courageous as we want to be. And I think God created us to be, but I have a chapter in, in that book, Making of a Mystic, called Mushrooms and Missionaries. And it's about how mushrooms essentially functioned as a missionary for me, pointing me towards the fullness of life in Christ. So, you know, one of the great mystics of the 20th century, Thomas Merton, who I love, he had this profound experience when he was moving towards his own awakening. So he's starting to have his own experiences. He's on his way. And there was this Hindu monk who was visiting and teaching, I think at one of the Ivy League schools, maybe somewhere in Chicago at the time, Thomas, his name was Mahanambrata Brahmachari. And Thomas Burton, like, it's kind of like a pastor at a big evangelical church. Like someone comes up to him after, you know, him or her, like, hey, pastor, can I just talk to you for a sec? It was like one of those moments for Thomas Merton. So he goes up to this Hindu monk and he's just ask for guidance, you know, like what should, maybe what should, I don't know exactly what he said, but like, where should I go? What should I be reading? Whatever he said. And at the, a critical crossroads in his journey, this Hindu monk told this young Thomas Merton to read the Confessions of St. Augustine and Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. It's a fascinating story. A Hindu monk tells this young white male to read people from his own culture 
his own tradition. I don't know if he was a Christian yet, but from within that tradition in order to guide him towards his journey. Now, let's just say these books are integrated into Merton's journey towards his life of becoming a monk. Great, to me, one of the great Christian contemplatives ever. Well, if a missionary's role is to point people towards the fullness of life in Christ, which, by the way, I know the word missionary is totally tangled up in white supremacist, colonial, expansive, dominating, violent movements, which it is. So I'm aware of that, and I do my own job dismantling all of that. I hope all of you do as well. But the healthy part of that term is like it's pointing people towards the way of Jesus and Christ. That's a good thing. And in that moment, I would say that Hindu monk was a missionary for Thomas Murray, pointing him towards the way of Jesus and the life of Christ. In the same way, mushrooms did that for me on my journey when I had no guides and no pastors and nobody to look to. They were a signpost pointing me to the future I couldn't see, to the freedom I desired but wasn't even sure existed, and to this truth I was hoping for but knew wasn't guaranteed. And eventually, in the midst of that, at 18, I had this profound awakening moment with God. It was like the 10th time I ever did mushrooms. And from that moment, when I finally met the source, when I finally encountered God and met that which I had been searching for, I never did psychedelics again, even to this day. Because to me, it was, no, they were the signposts pointing me to the reality. To go back to the signpost would be to going, would be going backwards now. They, I felt they were pointing me to something beyond them towards God. And when I met God, I'm like, if you gave me directions to the ocean, I don't need directions anymore because I'm already here. So, and even like, it's so funny in the more like new agey, you know, sort of like Western Buddhist, like Alan Watts kind of version of spirituality that people are still influenced by today. He said in the 20th century, this famous quote about psychedelic experiences where he says, when you get the message, hang up the phone for psychedelic drugs are simply instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. And I think about that because I'm like, yeah, they were, I'm not saying they are that for everybody. I don't think they become that because most people who do psychedelics don't become great leaders of justice and working for, towards compassion. I don't think they all do. But for me, when you, when you get the message, hang up the phone, I'm like that, they were pointing. They weren't the point. They were pointing me beyond themselves. Don't tell people hey, this is the way. No, that, that was what happened to me. That was my journey, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and there is a larger tradition of things like that happening, even for Christians, like the Jesus people 70s. Like I did acid and I woke up and I was a Christian or whatever, you know, you hear stories like that. And so, yeah, my disclaimer is that's not prescriptive for me. I wasn't like the leader of Imagine Church, like we're all gonna uh, microdose <laughs> mushrooms and then do the Eucharist together, you know? It I love that just... you have a disclaimer, an asterisk. <laughs> You're like, this is not my disclaimer. I mean, okay, you mentioned, about... yeah, yeah. You mentioned owning the fullness of your story, and you're saying this is your story, and this is how God showed up to you. And I think that's so true that Jesus shows up in the most unexpected spaces and places mm. and states. Mm states mm. of mind, right? Like mm. I, I'm thinking like of some of my own stories of growing up with an addict and then, you know, using substance like crazy before I knew Jesus. And some of my most uh, vulnerably open 
moments considering the divine were when I was inebriated. And partly Mm. because you sort of start letting your guard down and what's really in there, the deeper Mm. longings Mm. of your heart can kind of come out a little bit or you allow them to. Mm. Um, But I also think as you're talking, I think about, you know, Jesus showing up in the tombs to the guy who's completely isolated and he is cutting himself and he's in a crazy state of mind. Like you, the guy can't be tied up. Right. And by the time Jesus shows up in that place that that no one would think a rabbi would show up in, let alone mm. God, Jesus runs into this guy and, you know, he's he's naked. And then at the end of the story, it says he's sitting there clothed in his right mind. Right. Mm. So, like, I'm all about the idea that and oh, some listeners, like, did you catch that willow in that story? I, I'm I'm the crazy man. I'm the one. I'm the, I'm the character who's who, who's out of his mind, you know, hurting himself. And then Jesus helped. OK, I get what you're no, doing. No. <laughs> I, I was that. And, and sometimes still. But no, what I'm getting at is like I can totally wrap my mind around the idea that the the divine god with us jesus shows up in spaces that no one else will go no one else Mm. will enter in and no one expects god to show up there Mm. you know Mm. and i think it's interesting that you had an experience where a lot of people would say god would never show up in a space or Mm -hmm. a place like that but he actually did for you and it pointed you to him. And Mm. I think that's, that is the work of Jesus. I think Jesus shows up in places that a lot of his people won't go. If you, Mm. if you think about that collision, I'm talking about the guy in the tombs, the story before that, the disciples are in a boat. They just experienced a storm and they're peeing their pants and crying out for Jesus to save them. And he's taking a nap and they're ticked. And he just, bosses the wind and the waves around and then they're totally fine and the boat gets to shore and Jesus gets out because he cares about a man who's in this weird state and where are his disciples like where are his homies they're all in the boat because they want to be comfortable we don't think Mm. Jesus will enter into a state of of a place where people are doing psychedelics or a place where you know people are crazy or naked or um, they look different than us or they talk different than us or they believe different than us. And so I think this idea of owning the fullness of your story, we have a God who loves us so much. He'll pursue us wherever we're at. So that Mm. makes sense to me. That's so good. And also what I think is important, whether people are more like outside the church, having other practices and rituals, or for people who are in the church and have their own like rituals and practices, the real work of transformation and the further journey towards freedom does not happen during the high of Saturday night or Sunday morning. It always happens after. Whether you're going to Burning Man for this experience or whether you're, to me, whether you're going to like a big Christian conference and looking for like a mountaintop moment that's supposed to change everything instantaneously. No, for me, that those those can be great. But the real work is always Wednesday afternoon. Like the real work extends beyond the religious experience, the, the big thing, and comes from consistent practices that enable you to remain in the vine that enable you to remain in love that enable you to remain in Christ. Like the real work is whether or not you're going to face your own shadow and feel those painful things all the way through to the other side. 
like you mentioned. The real work is confronting, naming, and letting go of all of the illusions that you have about how life's supposed to work that are keeping you frustrated. The real work is forgiveness. The real work is courage. Like it's always after that. So the majority of people are like, I did a psychedelic trip, my ego dissolved, but I'm like, okay, in the moment, I get it. But if Thursday we're not doing the real work, it just ends up being another thing you did that doesn't actually lead to the ongoing transformation that Christ invites us into. And that's true for Christians or non-Christians. That's the real journey. Mm, yeah. I mean, it becomes experience <clears throat> chasing instead of relationship Exactly. Living, right? That's a great way we- of saying it. We are getting near the end of our time, but I haven't even talked to you about your podcast and I have to talk to you about your podcast because I think it sounds right up my alley. I haven't listened yet, (laughs) but I'm going to, but it's called The Church Needs Therapy. Can you tell us why this has become a driving passion for you to center conversations around? Yeah, I think one, to to be honest, when I first started it in the summer of 2020, being so far from people in Hawaii it gives me a chance to connect with people. Like if it isn't for podcasts, we're not having this conversation, you know, more than likely. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. You know, and there's people out there, like I want to be connected with people who are helping build the kind of future I want to be a part of. So one on a simple level being this far where I don't get to go to events and see people all the time just because of where we're at. Like it's a great, it's just a great chance for me to do that. Even through the books and writing and endorsements I got, like a lot of that was born out of just those connections. And you know, the title, the church needs therapy. My wife's a therapist. She has her own private practice here in Kaka'ako. She kills it. She's the ambitious, more steady focus. I'm more of like the artistic, like this is going to work, but we got to hold this tough space for a while. Then it's going to go. And, you know, people who go to therapy go because they have hope. If you don't have hope, you don't even take that time. You're not going to look for transformation because you've already decided it's not possible. And the church needs therapy for me is I consider I've, I've over the past 15, 20 years or so, I can do all the naming and critiquing of everything getting in the way of, I think, the the way of Jesus in the world. Like, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can, you know, talk about institutionalized white supremacy. We talk about power dynamics in the church and abuse and covering up and people more concerned with public perception than real people. We can go on and on and on. And yet, when the church is shining, I don't see anything else like it. And I, and I not only am committed to the way of Jesus, but I love the great tradition of our faith. Goes back much further than the Great Awakening preachers. Goes back much further than, six, than the United States of America. It goes back really far. And it's a beautiful um, tradition to be a part of. And the church needs therapy saying, yeah, let's, let's name all the things. Let's talk about them honestly. But that's not the point is to just keep doing that. The point is to clear the way to keep building and creating something new. And that was true for like our, at at Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, one of their taglines or whatever they call it is, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Who is going to have the courage to keep creating the newer spaces that we want to be a part of? In part, I started imagining because I wanted a church to be a part of like that. And I I just didn't see one. So for me, the church needs therapy is, hey, let's do all the work, just like in therapy. Name it, own it. It's tough. It's painful to say. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Let's keep going. 
And then once we do that, it's all for clearing out the way for us to keep courageously incarnating the body of Christ and building something beautiful, caring for each other, being being a consistent presence of compassion, voices for justice in the world. Okay, let's do all the clearing out of the way for us to keep doing that. So that's where it comes from for, for me is even my... <clears throat> year-ish, even though it feels like more than a year, because the last six months of Imagine were very, they weren't highly demanding. My little bit of time away, not going to church. I haven't been to church since we stopped. You know, we're not in a rush to do that right now. And I'm, as far as I am, as Kev's a mystic, I have probably different thoughts on the way beliefs, all these different things. And you know what? I'm like, man, I really love the church. That's where I'm at right now. I still love the church. I still want to be a part of it. I still want to help support her, love her, care for her, and help her grow into what we all believe she can keep becoming. And I'm like, that's really cool to do that for 10 years, to be the unique person I am and have the unique experience I have. And be like, man, I still love the church and I want to give my life to this. So church hmm. needs therapy is a part of that. Yeah, it was very cool. We talk a lot at Collide around the idea that you have to recognize brokenness before it can be made whole. So, mm-hmm. you know, you see Jesus doing that all the time and helping people to be made aware of their own brokenness because we've been invited to ignore our own brokenness. We've been told people in the church can't handle our brokenness. Mm-hmm. And so we're constantly living in a state of brokenness because it can't be made whole unless we first recognize we have it going on. You know, mm. like you look at Jesus showing up to the woman at the well and really that whole banter back and forth about go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband, five husbands, blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, this pattern in your life is maybe not working. You know, like he's helping her become aware Mm. of a way that she's thirsty that maybe she Mm. hadn't even realized Mm. she is, right? And so the church needing therapy, like how powerful for Capital C Church to be like, hey, we're broken. Like we've made mistakes. We've blown it. We've totally, we've totally um, hurt people. And we need therapy would be so powerful because then it would give individuals permission mm. to say, hey, I'm broken too and I need some mm. therapy, right? I, I sometimes imagine like what could what could happen mm. If, mm. if that were to happen. I preach different places and I was, it makes yes. me think of uh, being at this church and afterwards there's people in a line to chat and this kind of short older guy with glasses came up to me and never seen him before in my life. And it's like a mega church. And he basically said, I'm going to tell you something no one in this church knows. And he's been involved in this church for decades. Mm-hmm. And he said that his wife went into her sewing room and he didn't know why she was in there. And then he knocked on the door and she didn't answer. And after a while, like he kept knocking on the door and she wouldn't answer. So he started banging on the door And this went on for a while. And then he just like with his little body just ran and knocked, knocked down the door. And he said, there was my wife with, you know, she cut her wrists open and there's blood running down her, her arms. And he, he's just crying. And he's Mm. like, I've never told anybody in this 
place this story. And here you can see him. He's just so isolated in their pain and no one knows. So, so there's no help. There's no community there. There's no like healing invitation because he doesn't feel like anyone in his church can handle his pain. You know what I mean? I think about that guy all the time and I think, why, why does he feel like no one in this church can handle their pain? Like what kind of message, what are we doing as, as capital C church to send the message that we can't handle pain? Cause when you look at the life of Jesus, he can handle anything mm. anyone has to bring to mm. him. So I, all that to say, I get super worked up about this topic and I'm going <laughs> to go listen to your podcast. I want to hear it. Um, mm. I, I want to spend more time listening to, to what God is saying through you. So I'm just grateful. I, we're coming to the end of our time here, but I'm so grateful to have this time with you, Kevin, and excited to learn more from you. How can people who want to check out your podcast, check out your two books? How can they mm-hmm. connect with mm-hmm. you? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I really have so much love for pastors and, I can extend that to healers and people who just really care about people. And as a person who does that, you know, I see that and that's a, it's a special thing. You know, our world needs pastors and needs guys and needs people to care. So um, be, on the, on the silent collective behalf of the many people I've encountered you, thank you for uh, continuing to do that. But yeah, for, for uh, connecting most active on social media, on Instagram at Kevin Sweeney one, that's where you can, get in touch probably the best with me, see what's going on. Two books that came out, The Making of a Mystic, that I shared this more of my own personal story in, but other things as well. The, the most recent book, The Joy of Letting Go, How One Thing Has the Power to Change Everything. Both of those, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online, easy places to order them, find them. And yeah, the podcast, The Church Needs Therapy. I do have, I'm approaching like the 100th episode, which is cool. And half of those are, it's roughly like half interviews and half me doing some sort of teaching my own thing on there, which, you know, has been great. And yeah, the whole trusting that you'll be carried through the the book, The Joy of Letting Go, that's my whole thing is it is joy after the letting go because it is life and resurrection after the death. And even when there's neurosis around, I think, <clears throat> the state of the church right now in the West, especially evangelical-ish versions, it isn't just an individual journey of death and resurrection. That's true collectively for the church, too. We can allow old forms to die, and guess what? Spirit's not going anywhere. The way of Jesus is still making its way through history, and we can allow her to be born again and again. And one of the great living mystics, from my perspective, Mirabai Star, says something like, you know what? You know what you do during a spiritual meltdown? Just melt. And then you trust that you'll be born again on the other side. And that's what the book's about. And that's what I think this whole journey is, you know? So, yes, I appreciate this time together. Thank you, Kevin. It was great hanging out with you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Well, friend, I know that that was a lot to chew on, and I hope that more than anything, you were invited to trust death and resurrection in your own life, that you were invited to trust that on the other side of letting go, there's more life there. 
And we see that in Jesus all the time. We see him asking people, let go of your treasures and you'll feel so much richer when you give to the poor. Let go of holding on to your life so much so. In fact, he says, why don't you think about losing your life and there you'll find it. Or to the woman who was so, so thirsty that I talked about with Kevin, who was going from man to man to man to quench her thirst. And Jesus says, on the other side of letting go of that chase, I have a water that will fill you and you'll never grow thirsty again. On the other side of letting go, Jesus says, there's something new that can be born. We see that in his life and his death, but also in our own experiences. And I don't know what you have going on today that God is inviting you to let go of, but I imagine there's something, and I imagine that it must be super hard to consider doing it. And so my prayer for you is that God would infill you with all the bravery and courage that you need, that you would be able to hold on to Him for your strength and all of your needs, trusting that He has good in mind for you, that He has your life in the palm of His hand, that He knows what's best. And on the other side of hard is life, on the other side of darkness is light, and on the other side of death is resurrection. I hope that you keep colliding and we'll catch you next week.